I think you could be forgiven for thinking that all poetry does in my life is stress me out. If you've just been listening to my most recent episodes, I think you could make an argument that this Alice Allen person, she doesn't really like poetry. (laughs) All it is, is it's just a burden. And I admit that there are plenty of aspects to it that are stressful. I think Matthew put this extremely well in a recent intro of his. There's a lot of time you spend kind of stressed and overwhelmed and you feel like there's so much to read and so much peripheral stuff that you have to do, so much that's calling for your attention and it it can be easy to forget how great this stuff is. And then you read something and you think, oh, yes, there it is. That's, that's the thing. That's why I love it. Harry Reid's work consistently gives me that feeling. And even though the poems that we talk about here are all about a very stressful topic, the topic of work, they always make me laugh, even the ones I've heard multiple times. And even when they are, and they often are, quite gut-wrenching. Anytime I'm around Harry, I remember that it's all about how seriously you take it. And at the same time, it's all about how much you give. Quick notes before we get into it, because every conversation I have here with another poet reflects the place that they are and where they live to some degree. But I'm particularly aware with this conversation that It's probably going to sound, if you live outside of Melbourne, it's going to sound quite Melbourne-centric. And I I don't want anyone to listen to this and feel like shut out or irritated by that. That's the last thing I want. And because we we move past these names pretty quickly, I just want to let you know a few of the, the people that we mention. We talk briefly about Gig Ryan. Gig was the poetry editor of The Age newspaper from 98 to 2016. And she's been publishing since the early 1980s. Michael Farrell is about to launch his latest collection called Google Collier. I think that's his eighth collection. And hey, I might even see you at that launch. Evelyn Araluen has just won the Stella Prize for her book Drop Bear in the first year that poetry was included in that prize. And we also talk at the end about the Wheeler Centre The Wheeler Centre describes itself as Melbourne's home for smart, passionate and entertaining public talks. Many of the other people that we mention here I've spoken to on this show, so I've linked to those interviews and you can get to know them. For now, here is Harry Reid. I'm going to start by quoting from the new book, Leave Me Alone. Sure. How does it feel to have the first collection out, by the way? Uh, yeah, it's good. It's it's nice to just have it kind of done. Yeah. And out in the world. Is it Because it was a little while coming together. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a bit of a strange inception as well. So mm. it's just kind of taken this long, long time. And then you write the book. I mean, I've never published something like a full length before. You write the book and then it's done and you kind of feel like, well, it's done. Like, so let's just get it out. And there's like three, four, five, six months of like digging around in the <laughs> like post <clears throat> writing process or whatever. Yeah. During which time you're getting further and further away from the poems and like doubt is creeping in. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I was really glad that I got to come to the launch and in... Gareth's speech, he quoted a line from one of the poems, Work Song. I think the worst thing a book could be is necessary. Yeah. Can you unpack what you mean by necessary? Um, oh, when I was kind of thinking about like when books become, or like new books become this like, you know, urgent quote-unquote or like important texts or whatever that everyone's got to read because they're like so important and then you kind of like completely miss the you know poetic or 
whatever value of the artistic value of the book because you're like man this is so necessary this is such an important like poem actually that's really like gonna shape the you know national consciousness or should or like this is a real moment for whatever and you miss the poem being like good on its like poetic merits or whatever because it just becomes like homework homework yeah yeah I completely know what you mean you know what I mean yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like the poets whose work gets described as necessary or important or urgent, that's such a curse. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, like recent example or whatever is Drop Bear. Yeah, this Drop Bear is what I'm thinking about. Yeah. yeah. Or like before that, probably Black Work by Alison Whitaker, yeah. which probably, I was talking about this the other day, should probably have been what Drop Bear was. Like this, like moment or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people were. I don't know. It sounds trite to say like people weren't ready for it or whatever. Or maybe Alison is like kind of a bit more hardcore in their poetics. But you know what gets missed in the like drop bear discourse is that like the poetry rocks. Absolutely. You know, like Absolutely. the poetry is so good, and yeah. Evie's like really funny. And it's, like, really well thought out and she's doing cool things with language. Yeah. And, like, some of the poems are just, like, a total riot mm. and are, like, great and silly or whatever. And But everyone's like, wow, this is, like, so important or whatever. And you're like, no. I mean, it is, but, like, it's also just, like, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. Yeah. The other thing that I think, and I, I really hope to to have this conversation directly at one point, but I feel as if what gets missed too is an appreciation for the the best word I can think of here is romantic, like the melancholy, um, the love poems yeah. in that book really, really moved me. There's a poem where uh, Evie and, and her partner go to London and it just, in, in the midst of just just like global scale horror and yeah. and um yeah it just really broke my heart that one it is funny to think about those poems being about john sometimes i don't know john at all <laughs> so i, I feel <laughs> i feel yeah i i can just sort of take them on there i mean john there. rocks like i love both of them or whatever but like you know he's just like it's just john he's <laughs> just like damn this poem is like so tragic and so beautiful and then you just see john at the pub and you're like you're just like some guy <laughs> every guy in a poem is also just some guy that's though. what i mean yeah, I mean, like yeah. it could be anyone in could the world anyone. but you're just yeah. like damn mm. the other line that i want to quote to start off with is just after that line i think the second worst thing a book can be is boring. What's a quick way to make a poetry book boring? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's kind of like a, you know when you see it, right? Um, I think, I don't know, maybe like an immediate kind of quick fire thing is like when you read the first three or four poems of the book and they're just kind of like all over the place mm. there's like no kind of cohesion or whatever because then it's just like oh, you've compiled some like greatest hits of the last 18 months of your poetry and whacked them in a book and been like see you later <laughs> it's yeah. kind of nice when there's like some kind of driving theme or whatever but I don't know it's yeah it's like a you know it when you see it mm. first collections are very often like that though and this isn't Mine almost was right so what stopped it you said the inception was a bit weird and it, it took a good long time how have you ended up with something that's so cohesive well uh i was actually asked to uh, have a collection with um like brow books when they were going to do like a poetry um to their publishing house oh. and i was and Melody Paloma was going to be like the editor there for the poetry wing. Um, <clears throat> and then, I mean, you know, it came out that like um, Zan was a sex pest and the whole thing fell apart. Um, and so, goodbye, Brow Books. Um, so that never got off the ground? No. Okay. 
But I was compiling this like manuscript for that. Well, and that would have been a good while ago then, like 2017, Yeah, 18? Uh, yeah, 18. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it was like... A, greatest hits of the last two years or whatever and I was like a bit of a baby poet back then and I didn't really know what I was doing but I had this like big fucking document on my computer mm. you know and that I thought looked like a manuscript because it like had you know 50 pages or something like that was always my my measure <coughs> yeah this is long oh, it's long like it's kind of like a book length kind of <laughs> I mean and it was like completely dreadful but um that fell apart and then I looked at the thing and I was like, this is garbage. Well, how did you know it was garbage? Because I knew it was garbage the whole time. But I was like, book, 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 book. Right. First book, holy shit. Right. I've been asked to do a book. Right. Got to do it. But I was like, this is trash. Like, I kind of knew it instinctively. But so I, <clears throat> I like stripped it for parts, effectively. Right. After that whole thing happened. Um... And then I was like, what is this? What am I writing? What am I writing now? What can I salvage out of this? And then I was kind of like, I'm just writing all these work poems. Maybe that's the thing. <clears throat> and then Bella Lee just emailed me out of the blue. and was like, hey, do you have a book? We would like to publish one mm. with Cordite. And mm. I was like, holy shit. My answer was like, uh, no, <laughs> I so don't. Have at that book. point, you said, no, I don't. I Even don't though you had 50 pages, you were like, that's not a book. Yeah. I was like, no, I don't have one. But I'm working on one. Like, I know what the book is. And I'm like, I need a year. I was like, come back to me in a year. And she was like, that's fine. Like, have 12 months. Mm. Get back to us in 12 months. I was like, cool. So then I just kind of had this mandate to, like, write that. And I did. That's fantastic. Can we hear a poem to get us into the book? Yeah, sure. Maybe we'll start with Working From Home, WFH, a rat bastard poem. Sure. Work From Home, a rat bastard poem. Feeling like a rat bastard versus actually being one. We hate rats, but love a bastard. You can't open your inbox and think, I'm a rat bastard. That's not for you to say. We love a charming bastard, but hate a ratty one. I'm thinking more and more about the perfect way to spend an hour. Today I look at my phone and think, aha. Yesterday I looked and thought, that's no good. I am often at the precipice of offering, of offering help only to back down. Maybe this is where the poem lives. Sometimes a poem is like a multivitamin. Other times a poem is like a golf course, kicking sand up all over the place. Eating a bloody Les Murray ham sandwich is the best line I've read in years. Me? I'm eating a hearty lamb ragu with rigatoni and thinking where's this pull to the self-referencing poem come from? Feeling bastardly, is it possible in the morning? There's a few bastards who could tell me, but they're all, well, sometimes you have to take the kid gloves off. Okay, okay. If the poem has a job, it's to find a way to write on the clock. Ideally, my job is in service to the poem. Instead, it's often in service to a bastard. This is where the rat bastard poem comes in. Starts thinking, there's got to be some way to get around this paywall. Poem's dilemma. Who's going to pay me 50 bucks? Poem becomes a website, becomes a direct debit. In this way, the poem pays for itself. Then, alright, how to wrap up the bastardly poem? A few kids gone bad, throwing eggs out of a Beamer convertible. A few kids getting into the bag, a few rats getting out. Staring down the work versus actually doing it. The rat bastard poem gnawing at the walls said who'd want a desk job anyway, but knows a poem unaware of a paycheck is no use at all. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah. Who wrote the Les Murray line? Gareth. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So, apart from being apart from being a poem that gets some of your best laughs, because I've seen this read at least three times, I think, this poem seems like it might be arguing for poets to be paid. So do you reckon should being a poet be a paid job, like a full-time paid, paid thing? Well, I mean, like, it's not even worth considering because it will never happen. <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Like, no one's ever going to pay you 
$65,000 a year annually to sit down and think and write about po and write poetry. I mean, they should. But, like, it will <laughs> never happen. It will never happen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, it's you're absolutely right. I've always had a, a desk job alongside yeah. the writing of the poetry. And I, I don't know, I feel like it is kind of worth unpacking, though, because once when I first started out, I'm always thinking about the people who are listening who are just starting out. I thought that there was a way to do this that meant that I could do it full time. No, there's not. There's not. So what are the options? Like, what are... What are like the lifestyle choices for poets to uh, to pay the rent? Well, I mean, like, I mean, it's difficult, right? Like, it's hard to kind of think about. Okay, the cat's going nuts. No, it's fine. Um, you can't hear. Yeah. It's hard to think about. I think because. I don't know, you almost can't think about, like, you almost kind of have to think about your career and poetry as, like, two separate entities where poetry, hopefully, you can steal, like, time off the clock to write poems if you have a desk job. You know, like a fake email job, you can just kind of sit around writing poems instead of sending your fake little emails, mm. which is great. That's the kind of job I have now. Yeah. It's very perfect. Good. It's That's very what good. I had for like two and a half years. I was a receptionist. Yeah. So I just sat at the front desk and my job was to be there at the desk. And so I just sat there writing poetry, which is fantastic. Um, but I mean, that's kind of got, you know, I did, it's almost like a doomed um, exercise to be like, I'm going to forge my career on the basis of what gives me time for poetry, because then you would, I don't know, be a receptionist for the rest of your life, which is not great. Well, but you would also be a poet. That's true. Mm. But you would be like badly paid and work a shitty job. You can't work a fake email job forever, I found out. How did you find that out? Because damn near, <laughs> like, nearly killed me. And I got, you know, like, restructured to, like, within an inch of my life. And then was like, i got to get out of here. Mm. Um, I have dreams of working at, like, the biscuit factory. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's hard to write poems and make biscuits at the same time. Well, no, I'm getting my forklift license next month, which is great. And then I'm like, man, I'll just work at the biscuit factory and put pallets of biscuits on the back of a truck and do that in the evenings and the morning will be like in service to poetry. Okay. So something totally that doesn't use any brain power or uses a completely different kind of thinking. I think so. Yeah. I like I could never ever, ever do the like freelance thing. No way. That sucks. That me. seems insane to it me. It seems too. crazy. Yeah. And your job is to, like, chase up invoices and pitch little essays and articles or whatever. And then you are, what, like, sitting at home in your study or your bedroom, writing these, like, funny little articles that you kind of despise. And thinking that maybe, like, you know, your creative brain is, like, turned on all the time in chasing these, like, meager little paychecks. How are you ever going to write anything that's like not tied to like uh, an invoice you know like how are you ever going to switch off from like writing an essay for like BuzzFeed yeah and writing a poem like I feel like it would be completely impossible the different kinds of writing and thinking yeah for sure but you're still like you know you're just like writing all the time and you're like sending email emails to like overland all the time and it's just like crazy <laughs> to me like I couldn't do it uh, yeah, I mean, I tried for a little while, but God, it's hard. One of the other things I really, one of the many, many things I love about your work is that it's extremely savage. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, mm. I've, I see that particularly in the postcards to Gareth section of the book, where I think because you are writing to a single person who's very much your friend, mm. you are letting loose a little bit. Um, that makes me think about the fact that when I hear you described, I often hear the word rat bag. 
Sure. What's I mean, a what's a rat bag for for overseas listeners? What's a rat bag? I think it might be an Australianism. It is. It's kind of like almost impossible to describe. There's yeah. that Duncan Ho's essay in Cordite like a thousand issues ago, where he kind of plots out a definition of ratbaggery, mm. which I think is quite good. Um, well, I mean, it's you know, it's like, oh, what is a rat bag? What is a rat bag? <laughs> like a little <laughs> cheeky bastard. <laughs> yep. It's kind of, you know, it's like, uh, I don't really know. It's hard to define. I ask because I wondered, the last sick leave that I went to, you read a poem called Dog on Wheels. Sure, yeah. Which is very, very, very funny. I like <laughs> a lot. And I keep thinking about the lines. Um, and I know it's a joke poem and I don't want to like hold your feet to the fire about it. Uh so we can totally not talk about it if you'd like to. But I just love the lines, dog on blast, cancelled dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was thinking about the rat bag thing and thinking, how does one achieve rat bag status in 2022 without just alienating people and getting cancelled? Getting cancelled. Well, I think like the... I think a huge part of being a rat bag, a cornerstone of being a rat bag is like being charming. Right. Because if you're like an uncharming rat bag, then everyone hates you. Then you're an asshole. And you're just like a dickhead, right? Yeah. So charming asshole, that might get us closer to a definition. Yeah, I think a rat bag is, is by definition quite charming and liked. Um, and rat baggery, I think, is like an act of, um, you know, being a bit outside the boundaries or whatever, but not too much. Because otherwise, then you just become like a total menace. But a rat bag, I think, kind of exists to push the boundary a little bit, but maybe only like an acceptable, still within like an acceptable limit, I think. So to just kind of push against it and say, this is the boundary. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. In yeah. a charming way. Yeah. How do you be a rat bag in 2022 without getting cancelled? I think just, you know, like it's normal stuff. Be nice, be respectful. Rat bags are still respectful, I think. Mm. Um, you know, I think rat baggery shouldn't hurt people's feelings too much. It does hurt people's feelings a little bit. But I think if you go beyond that and actually just start like being a complete menace, then I mean, that's no good. Have you written a poem that's hurt, hurt anyone's feelings? I don't think so. Mm. I mean, maybe. Not that you're aware of. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't told me about it, if I have. Yeah. That leads me to ask about humour. I heard somebody make the comparison between the poetry that they were hearing at your launch and stand-up. And I wonder if you take that as a compliment or as a dismissal. Because the laughs are really important. Yeah, totally. Like if you didn't get, I mean, it's a little bit unfair almost to record you reading these poems with just me in the room because like the laughs that you get are genuine laughs. They're not just like poetry, like golf laughs. Yeah, I went to, um, I read at like the Overland launch of Groundswell this Thursday <clears throat> and I read two poems and it was kind of to like, like a very somber crowd or whatever. Yeah, and I was like, the Overland crowd is pretty serious. And I was like, I'm dying up here. Like <laughs> this sucks. So no like, laughs. Yeah, not really. Ooh. I was like, you know, trying to tee up the line and got nothing. Okay. And I was like, oh, this is painful. Yeah, right. Um, well, maybe it's a matter of permission too, because I think. As fans of your work, we know that these are jokes. Yeah, sure. That you're allowed to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really go to stand-up gigs or, like, I'm not, like, involved in that scene at all. Mm. Um, I've kind of, I mean, it seems to me, like, 
maybe unfairly because I don't know a damn thing about it, but it seems like not my kind of crowd, I suppose. Um, so I think it's kind of like a weird comparison just because, you know, like I, I love a funny poem or a joke in a poem. I think mm. it helps to drive the poem. I think it kind of helps to drive a point across if you can like make light of it and approach it in like an interesting, like funny way. Mm. Um, so I think it's a weird comparison because I feel like a poem and a stand up set are crafted into like very different ways with two different goals in mind. Yeah, completely. The point of the poem is not like to get a laugh at the thing. That's kind of like an added benefit or it's like a tool in which to like make the poem good. Mm. My objective is not to like make a funny joke. Mm. Yeah. So maybe it would help to bring in some examples. So there's a longish poem at the end of the book called Book of Hours which has two really funny lines in it. Two-factor authentication is a misnomer. There are three factors and the third is yourself. That got a really big laugh. I am glad because that's like my favourite joke in the book. <laughs> Your desire that's to like, log in. It's an actual yeah. joke. <laughs> but then there's this one in the same poem further in. Possible upsides to a volatile market include a sense of adventure. Possible downsides include losing everything. That's really funny and really wrenching. Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's funny, but, like, that's what happens. <laughs> you just lose all your damn money. You lose your damn money. Yeah. Thinking about humour and jokes in poems, I'm starting to think a little bit about John Forbes, who we chatted about, and I can see him in your book, um... There is a poem called There's No Business Like No Business, which is even shaped a bit like a Forbes poem, and I think it starts, does that thing that he does where he starts lines with an ampersand. Mm. Do you want to talk a bit about Forbes, or is that going to make it seem like you're just writing in response to John Forbes, which is not... I know that's not the case, but I just thought I would, like, open the door to that. I mean, you know, you'd like I, I feel like I probably kind of am always, like... I mean, you know, still to this day, <clears throat> he's still like cast such a long shadow across Australian poetry, right? Like, and I mean, he was like the first Australian poet um, for me that I read and was like, fuck, like you can do that. Like, you know, brought it in. I think was in your Forbes episode or whatever Liam Fernie was talking about. Yeah, Liam said, like, this is the first time I heard somebody writing in our idiom, yeah. in our language. And you can just, like, yeah. you can just go do it. Yeah. Um, and that was so, like, groundbreaking for me also. Um, in kind of, like, yeah, the exact same way that Liam described. Um, and, you know, he's, like, always kind of a source of inspiration. I get stuck and I read the collected works again and go, like, God. <laughs> how does he do it yeah. you know yeah. you're just like trying to chase up up after him but yeah I mean there's like definitely like a huge inspiration there I don't you know I would hate for people to think that I'm just like trying to be like a Forbes derivative well that's why I sort of hesitate to bring it up but I also feel like it's worth nodding in that direction well, yeah I mean it's worth yeah. acknowledging that like yeah. he's definitely a big source of inspiration for me personally but like I also try very very hard and like very self-consciously to like move beyond that mm -hmm. or not just you know I don't want to be like lockstep behind like a dead poet for the rest of my career mm. Because who does that serve? Kind of no one. Yeah, it's just tribute, I suppose. Yeah. Do you feel a sense of lineage, though? Because I, I suppose I would place your work in connection with that quote-unquote generation of 68 mm. crowd. Are there others, though, that you feel like you're writing after or in the wake of or...? in conversation with I mean I know you're in conversation with your contemporaries and we'll talk about that too but yeah yeah I mean probably the other big one would just be like Michael Farrell probably like 
yeah, like we were saying, who's the boss of Australian poetry? Maybe Michael. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then, I don't know, it's kind of like a classic ego, like O'Hara and Ashbury and blah, 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 blah. But mm. like, yeah, I don't know, really. I kind of, I, th- I think about that sometimes, but I don't really know where I land on it. The only thing that I know for sure is that if Forbes were alive, he would probably hate us. Me, oh, no I think he would way. be like a real cantankerous old bastard. No way. I think he'd love <laughs> you. I'm not so sure. We've spoken about this. We got drunk at the pub one time. We were like, if Forbes was alive, do you reckon he'd be cool? And we were like, nah. No, he wouldn't be cool. <laughs> he'd be like really hard to get along with. But he would, And he might like make a big show of hating you guys, but I think he would secretly be like, those are my people. Yeah, the Gig Ryan method of um, affection. <laughs> 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 well, let's... her and Gareth have some kind of like strange, like <laughs> symbiotic relationship or whatever. I think that it's because they're the only two people I know that are like, you know, I have to write poetry every day or I will die like a shark. Like I just have to keep like moving forward. Is Gareth like that? Yeah, totally. Wow. Gig is like that. She got, we were drinking like years ago after some poetry event and she was like <clears throat> railing at the woman who launched the book or whatever because she like had the like the nerve to say that you know us poets don't write every day or whatever and gig was like yeah maybe these like fake like <laughs> unserious poets don't write every day i write every day like if you Get serious, you know, if you're going to be serious about this, you need to be like always writing. And I was like, that's so not me, but that's totally Gareth. She's, yeah. And so they have this weird, like, she adores him. Oh. And it's like very funny. <laughs> God. I wish <laughs> I wrote she, every day. And she tolerates me. Like she texted Gareth to tell me to say sorry that she couldn't come to the launch. And I was like, you can also just text me, Gig. Like, you'd be like, hey, Ari, sorry I didn't come. But it's no, she's like, it's all through Gareth. Because she loves him. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the Gareth, Harry and Ursula thing. Because I think I'm really conscious of the fact that I've now spoken to Gareth and Ursula. And now I'm speaking yeah, to you. The, the trifecta. Doing the trifecta. <laughs> but, but. The three of you loom very large in my poetry world, but I do think about listeners who are nowhere near Melbourne and in no way connected to to sick leave. Sure. And, you know, I, I can imagine people listening and going, well, great, but, like, I live in Cabargo. Like, what am I meant to do? I can't get to one of these. Move out of Cabargo. <laughs> okay. Why are you so living you in Cabargo? You just have to come to Melbourne. <laughs> is that the answer? That is. All right. No, no. Do you see what I'm sort of getting at, though? Like, that sense of, like, it's all happening somewhere else. Sure. Mm. Like, were you born in Melbourne? Uh, no, actually. I was born in um, England. Oh, okay. But, I mean, I moved here when I was, like, three as well. Oh, okay. So, like, so you're sort of basically, basically Melbourne local. Yeah, totally. Right. I grew up around Frankston. Right, right, okay. Um, so the answer is to 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 come to where it's happening no not at all the answer is to build it yourself which Which is is what what, you guys did yeah yeah totally Mm -hmm. like if you're you know chomping at the bit because nothing is happening then just like go and make it happen I mean, that was the kind of ethos of sick leave, like, always. And, I mean, like, that's kind of continues. Like, that's why we're making books now. I mean, amongst other things or whatever. But it's mm-hmm. like, you know. <clears throat> Where can I send my, like, 30-page chapbook that's, like, full of poems about the shopping mall? Like, nowhere, really. So we were like, but they're great. So we'll publish them. Mm. Like, who cares? Mm. Patrick is writing us a story about some family who wake up one day and their the mother of the family has been replaced by like a 20th 12th century italian 
lady. Oh my god, I got to hear some of this. It's so good. It's phenomenal. But it's like way too long to exist anywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like 30 pages long and you just go, well, that's like this fantastic thing that has absolutely no market so we'll just put it out into the world mm. and like there is a market for it like f to consume it but not to like publish it I suppose mm. Mm. and that's how the event started you know we kind of like Ursula said we kind of looked around and went this is all kind of not for me and there's nothing really here that I want to go to so why don't we just do it ourselves mm. and make the thing mm. How do you balance the friendship side and the creative, collaborative, organisational side? Between the three of us? Mm. Um, I think we're like friends first and collaborators second. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of how it has to be. Otherwise, it's just... Otherwise, catching up with them is um, a meeting and not seeing my mates. Yeah. We have a group chat that is predominantly work, but, you know, not always. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, work is always secondary for sick leave, yeah, for mm. sure. Mm. Yeah, it's a good way to be. The community goes further out than just the three of you, though, obviously. Like, there's a, a line in, um, in the book here that references Tim Wright's sons, yeah, which, what a poem. Which Gareth also references. Yeah, we're obsessed with that poem. Yeah, Tim, just know that everyone's obsessed with that poem. And you also have a poem written after Melinda Bufton. Do you feel as if you're writing in, in a community of contemporaries? Um, or is this my, my romanticised notion of what it's like? I mean, like, kind of. I st well... That's kind of like an aspirational feeling or something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. totally. Like, I mean, I wrote my thesis on uh, Melinda and um, Tim and Michael Farrell. Right. And now, like, I have their phone numbers and that still feels crazy to me. And it still feels crazy to be, like, publishing alongside, you know, those guys and having books out and... Like publishing with Cordite, where Ella O'Keefe just published with Cordite, and it's like, what the hell is this about? Like, this is like, I still feel kind of like totally strange about it. Mm. Um, and I don't know if I would like count them as my peers, even though they completely are, because I think in some way they're still like such idols of mine, mm. even though they're like friends or whatever. But like, I couldn't bear to think of myself like writing alongside Melinda Bufton, you know, like I'm always like writing to her or like after or whatever, because it's just like, you're so good. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. Oh, that's so beautiful. I feel exactly the same way. Um, so like aspirationally, yes, but like how I truly feel is like I'm still, you know, scampering along behind <laughs> Hopefully to catch up one day. The rat bag scampering along. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear another poem from the book. I would love to hear you read this again. Work and work work. Work and work work. Yeah, it's good to have the extra space. I've turned the spare room into an office. Work on the bus, turn the bus into an office. Turn the commute into work. Isn't it nice when a job can be over there a little bit? See, I've got a couple of things lined up. Good to have a little time for the everyday stuff. Of course, we know that now. Mm, I mean, it's hard to be away so much, but at the same time, <clears throat> we look after you and that's awesome. And I can only encourage you to do that. And if you need a day off, that's fine. You can work from home, turn your couch into an office, turn lunch into work, turn kids into work. I've got my emails on my phone, turn my phone into an office. It all depends on the board and the direction we're moving in. We're already looking ahead to next few years. Just hope the tides hold off. Just hope the funding comes through. There's enough growth here to set you up for life. It's a dynamic industry. You could really move up, maybe move a little further inland. We all really love you here, mate, and you're a real asset to the team, but I'm afraid we're going to have to delay that conversation. But we want you here, just got to put the work in, just a few extra hours here and there, work paid for a standing desk, turn standing into work, turn you back into an office. 
And over time, you really start to see the impact we're having. We're becoming a real leader in the sector and it's all because of the work you've put in. And that's great, but I just can't approve that leave. And I'm so sorry, mate, but we're so close to going public. Just another few months. So close, mate. We couldn't be happier with the work you're doing. Just another few years and we're clear and we're good. And that job up in China, mate, it's yours if you want it. But it's bloody hot up there, I tell you. I was there last year and it's bloody hot. Thank you. No worries. So look, I'm glad that there is the line in the book that says the worst thing a poem can be is necessary. The worst thing a book can be is necessary. Because when I read something like that, and I sort of turned to Melinda at the launch and we had this little moment where we were both just freaking out being like, none of this is a joke though. (laughs) (laughs) It's all true. It's all so horribly true. Yeah, it's all deranged. It is deranged. And the, the word that Melinda uses is uncanny the uncanniness of that language. Um, did you write that poem while, like, in in this, against the sort of background of, like, everybody having to work from home? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, totally. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I'm, like, I don't really have a question. It's more just, like, it's so devastating. Like, this is what I mean by the, the savage nature of it, like. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like... I mean, you know, I was working at the uh, Wheeler Centre. Ah, the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre. Mm. We love the Wheeler Centre, <laughs> don't we, folks? Um, I mean, I was just like the front desk there or whatever, and I so easily could have like just been, see you later, because I was reception and venue hire, and those things don't exist when you are... At home. Oh, I see. Okay. So I was the receptionist of my living room, effectively. Wow. Um, <clears throat> what did they have you doing then? Fucking bullshit. Right. <laughs> like, just <laughs> absolute garbage. But they wanted to keep you on. I was doing data entry like a maniac. Mm-hmm. And um, we were getting restructured to fuck. And, like, our CEO left and took, like, $100 million. $100 million. Like, a million dollars of debt, like behind in his wake and was just like bye (laughs) (laughs) really yeah okay he left and then they were like hey you're like a million dollars in the hole and everyone was like what Mm. and it was like oh yeah because they're like ceo who just left like did all this stupid shit with all the money that we had and now he's gone oh my god (laughs) and it's your problem and everyone was like oh no so, like, lots of jobs got made redundant and blah, blah, blah. I probably should have been made redundant, but I guess they were like, you know, when we come back, maybe in three months, because everyone was like... Three months, three months, three, three months. months. You know, we'll need a receptionist. So mm-hmm. I just kind of did that. But <clears throat> I think it got so bad, corporate jargon in lockdown. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, like, somehow got completely like ramped up in this insane way that I did not expect. Maybe because when you are talking to a real human being, you're not like doing synergy business. It's yeah. It's much harder because you are just like, Hey, that thing, how's it going? Mm. And you're not like talking in this like crazy business way. Mm. Or maybe it's because my, whole job was getting restructured and there was like interim CEOs that would like come in and didn't know anyone and so the only way they could like express themselves was through this jargon but it was crazy you were just in like me you know it's like just in meetings all day staring Mm. at people on the screen telling you about like you know revenue streams and CRM implementation and the way that we need to like restructure our data blah 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 Mm. it's just like this is crazy Mm. none of this is real (laughs) (laughs) like none of this is real but it's so real because if you don't do it you are fired it is so real that moment with melinda was so much about acknowledging the exhaustion Mm. that and that's what these poems do for me The line that made me laugh the most and also feel the saddest is, what if a problem shared became mine entirely? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I work with this woman. She's, it's not the corporates, but like, she doesn't make sense syntactically. Like, I can't, sure. I can't get meaning out of what she says, even yeah. though the words, they're all English words, they don't line up in a way that I can figure out you what know, they mean. what's going on. But I always, whenever I talk that to rocks. her. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I need to start actually writing some of it down because it might, I don't know, maybe one day it make it just a, a horrific poem. But, um, yeah, it's like every time I talk to her, to help to help it's like help becomes well now this entire thing this entire mess is your problem to solve. yeah 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 when someone like approaches you with a task that they are having trouble with and then suddenly it is on your to-do list mm. and they have walked away from it and you go what just happened, <laughs> what <is> happened? <laughs> <laughs> So I did I did want to bring this up, and you may or may not want to talk about it on the record, but one of the things that Gareth also mentioned in his launch speech for the book was that it's not that you're just sitting at the reception desk writing these poems about how much work sucks and how it is strange and bizarre and, and dehumanising, but you you unionised your workplace as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, do you want to the... talk, Yeah. Do you want to talk about that or not? For all the good it did. It didn't do any good? It did not do any good. <clears throat> okay. I mean, like, I'm happy to talk about it. Mm. Yeah, so I was at the Wheeler Centre um, at the same time as the Heidi Grant and Penguin Random House union drives were happening and they were getting so stonewalled by their bosses, especially the Heidi Grant one. Um, and I was, like, at a... She started, I was at a party with some colleagues for like the election where Mike Morrison won or whatever. And we were like, fuck. <laughs> this is a bad time. <laughs> this is not good. Um, and then I was just like, well, like fucking, you know, again, you just have to like do it. Mm. You just have to go and do the work and it sucks. And it is so exhausting to like constantly be thinking like, well, I'm just going to go. And like do it because it's so easier, so much easier to kind of like sit in your laurels and do nothing. But mm, and complain. Yeah, I mean, and you can complain about the state of the like literary, you know, or like arts world, professional, professionally, I mean, you know, the art scene until the cows come home. But like it's not going to change anything. So I thought that. Um, the Wheeler Center was well placed as an organization that is like relatively small in terms of staff, but has this kind of clout um, in the Australian arts landscape. Clout enough to kind of have like a significant ripple effect if we were to come out and say like we are union and we support. <clears throat> the you know unionizing of these like fellow workplaces mm. you know through our support behind Hardy Grant through our support behind the Penguin Random House effort um and you know maybe the Sydney Writers Festival would like follow suit maybe like Writers Victoria would do the same thing and maybe it wouldn't change much of anything but like, you know, I was working full time on minimum wage at the Wheeler Centre. Like, I was earning absolutely nothing. I don't think I could have been earning less legally. <laughs> you know, like, it was, it was, it was awful. But, mm. and there were all, you know, it was like, like what every single arts organisation is like. Everything is run on goodwill. And absolutely like, and a sense of like you're so lucky to be here yeah and like yeah. you know you are putting in all of these crazy overtime hours big for like the love of the game for no like financial <laughs> return <laughs> the love of the game <laughs> that's so good and yeah. so i thought well like hell you know like at first it was kind of this like symbolic gesture but then when we started talking about it we started talking to reps about it we were like there's also like these systemic issues that we would like to change in our workplace mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that a union can help us with mm. um and i got a hundred percent density of like 
not senior management staff, like all junior staff were union at one point in time, which was incredible. That's really phenomenal. And then we approached senior management and they just like, I mean, they probably reacted exactly how you would expect them to react. Like in hindsight, I was like, it was very deflating, but they took it really personally. They were like, I can't believe you've done this. If you had, you know, concerns about your working conditions, you should have just come to us like, you know, independently or whatever. You didn't need to do this like whole rigmarole. They all decided that that wouldn't be appropriate for them to join the union. They were all like, you know, we were trying to, we came to them and said like, look, we're doing this for this reason. We think this can have a really, we think we are so well positioned within the industry to have like a really big impact with the pronunciation that we are like a unionized workforce. We think it's like, we could do a lot of good. And then they, and, but, and also like, <laughs> stop making us work like 10 hours overtime a week yeah, and not yeah, paying yeah. us. Yeah, and, and act like it's a favour. Yeah. yeah, and like let's like encode some like policies around like toil and overtime and like... You didn't you know, have any toil, that. you didn't have any overtime, like any of that? Well, it was all, it was all goodwill stuff. Right, right. You know? So no one was tracking, like I did two extra hours, okay. Exactly. Yeah. You just went, man, I worked like heaps this week, I'm going to take Friday off and like sometimes you could and sometimes you couldn't. Oh. Okay. You know, but it was all very like loosey goosey. Mm. And we were like, let's just encode it. And then when something happens and people leave and someone else comes in, the policies are there and it like doesn't, it's all fine now because it's all goodwill. But as soon as it doesn't become goodwill, yeah. we're fucked because yeah. we don't have these procedures in place. Mm. And senior management were like, that would never happen, you know, rah, 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 rah. And then they just stonewalled the union effort completely. And then the director left, the head of programming left. We had an interim CEO who was a board member who came in and fired a bunch of people and made people's roles redundant. And everything went to shit. And it was like, if only we had mm. this body mm. that we could like turn to <laughs> who would help us fight for like our workplace rights. Mm. If only someone had thought that maybe this would happen. And then senior management were like, it's so fucked. Like, I can't believe they're doing this to the organization. It was like, mm. you had your chance, man. And you killed us. And then everyone left and or was fired or made redundant. And then suddenly that 100% union density, that will to make everything better, that will to encode like good policies and procedures and practices and stuff was just gone. People were broken. Yeah, and new people came in and we just went, whatever, you know? Like, I, don't, I couldn't do it again. I couldn't start again. Oh, Harry. So I just was like, so I just left. <laughs> I just quit. <laughs> it's like, it sucks. So yeah, there was, it was a really deflating time actually in the end. Mm. That's what happens, you know, like <clears throat> when managers become your friend and you do the goodwill thing or whatever, and then you turn to them as like your manager and they like yeah, yeah, yeah. become, and then suddenly like, they're your boss again or whatever and they mm. can just kill you yeah 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 that is like the one thing i would say i've had like so many so many jobs so many of those like bullshit jobs just to to um to get to the poems at the end and like the one thing i would say to anybody listening uh who's in that scenario is like just remember that work never loves you back and your yeah. boss is never your friend yeah your friend boss is your boss they're your boss first. Yeah. And your friend that becomes a manager. Now they're your manager. Now they're your manager. Yeah. And your friendly manager that becomes the department head is the department head and they are your boss and they will like 
terminate your employment if they have to they because have that to. is their job that's what they have to do like yeah. and that's just how it works yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's so like frightening when you come up against that sometimes yeah, yeah. and you go oh my god like oh, it's so yeah, yeah it's like world shattering or something it's devastating yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no i've i've had to leave jobs under like doctor's orders before because they'd got so involved but um yeah all of which is just to say like look after yourself first yeah um let me end things on a slightly positive note sure or maybe it'll be positive maybe it'll be negative but you were talking before about your contemporaries and saying, look, I can't believe I have Melinda Bufton's number. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I feel a way too about Melinda. But, like, I, I suspect that there will be people listening who view you in that way, you know, like in terms of you're somebody who people look up to. You've created sick leave, which does have an influence, I believe. Um, so do you have any sort of i'm trying to say like words of wisdom but like what do you want to say to like people just starting now oh just like keep at it go do the thing it's great pottery rocks like pottery is the best thing in the world um and you just gotta go do it i don't know there's no like real like can't say anything like profound or like amazing (laughs) no but that's even better in a way that you don't have like I don't know. Just keep doing it. I wrote poetry for a long, long, long time before I thought like I wrote anything good, before I looked at a poem and I was just like, yes, this is it. I was writing for years and years and years before I hit the moment of like looking at a poem and going like, that's what's up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's that's great. You know, so you just like, you go write it, you write to people you just keep writing poems you go to gigs you read books you do whatever you do all of the like naff advice that everyone says read a lot and just keep at it or whatever like but that's the truth you know yeah read a lot yeah come to sick leave say good day <laughs> get out of where'd you say before cabago yeah get the hell out of cabago <laughs> no <laughs> I don't know. Start sick leave in Cabago. We'll franchise it out for you for 10%. Like, Hell all yeah. profits. Um, I don't know. Start a reading. Do go to the pub with some poets and read some poems or whatever. Like, just keep, just keep going. Because poetry rocks. And you have to have something outside of work or drudgery or dishes. Mm. And that's poetry or football or something (laughs) but poetry is the best one you can have so just keep doing it beautiful do you want to read one more thing before we go either from your book or if you want to read like is there something on your mind or no read read another poem happy to yeah read whatever yeah Read the dog poem. Oh, do you, would you? <laughs> yeah, or if you want. Serious, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I love this poem. Um, where's my phone? It's just here. Can I reach it? Yeah, yeah, I got it. All so right. this is for, uh, did you say it was written for someone? Yes, yeah, for, uh, written for Leah. For Leah. Leah Jean. And there's a, there is a line, a dog on wheels, in your chapbook as well. Yes, well, okay. that's the thing so okay. Leah loved that line mm-hmm. so much a dog on wheels yeah mm. just the idea of it yeah mm-hmm. she just thought it was very cute so I wrote her a poem <laughs> dog on wheels <laughs> um, alright no, no worries let's do it dog on wheels for Leah say it again oh dog on wheels skate through life and emerging traffic Dog on holiday, choosing out new wheels. Dog on long service leave, dog getting wheels serviced. Hot dog, mustard wheels. I'm Pacific pickle adverse, cruising dog on a yacht. Motorized wheels for the dog. Dog bog, bogged dog, maybe near broom. Dog dreams of being a Hilux. High on autumn, a real heifer this dog. Can't imagine how he gets around on those wheels. Soup can. Really inspirational. <laughs> Slipping and sliding. <laughs> <laughs> Slipping and sliding. Dog with no brakes on top of the world. 
Dog on top of his wheels, making his way east. Dog, oh dog on wheels. Dog eat dog on wheels. Dog fight. Mobile app. Bet return. Hair of the dog. On wheels. Dog of a day. Flat battery. Nebraska. Supply lines. Without trucks, Australia stops. 18-wheeler dog. Fanging it down the hume. It's really something. (laughs) Dawn of the dog. Accessibility nightmare. The wheels, I mean. Climate change. Naval fleet. Icebreaker, as in, what happened to the dog, looking at the wheels. Motocross accident. Upcoming merch line, Dog O' War, Dog O' Wheels, Speaking Tour, The Problem With Wheels. Dog On Blast, Cancelled Dog. Dog With No E-Tag, Unregistered Dog. Dog Living Rent-Free In My House, Doing Burnouts In The Backyard, Bloody Bastard Dog. Bum Rush, Need For Biscuits, Local Supermarket. Filing cabinet, overflowing with invoices. Due to the many ailments of half a dog, the front half, and the need for grease. Low pressure system, optimal tyre PSI. drive through dog wash, that was then, now. Removal of dedicated dog lanes becoming a real issue. Fair weather dog, no wipers. Dog gone, beware of wheels. Thank you. That's the dog poem. Thank you, Harry. No worries. Thanks for talking to me. That's okay. <laughs> it's very funny that you really like the soup can line. Really inspirational. <laughs> it's so dumb.